Father, we have come to hear the word of the Lord. We thank you that you have proclaimed to us life and hope, truth, freedom, victory, all of these things that come from the presence of the indwelling Spirit. O Lord, we come with different needs, different problems, from different trials, and yet you have met us in all of them. And Lord, some here this morning may be somewhat discouraged. I pray that even as we study this lesson this morning, we will find encouragement, we'll find strength, we'll find hope. Lord, I thank you for the fellowship that we can have together with one another and for the opportunity to share the, uh, all that you have done in our lives with each other. And I thank you, Lord, that we have this house of the Lord in which to gather and for the Sunday school classes they are meeting all through this building. And we pray your presence in each one and for the service that is going on at this time that you will bless there too. Father, we just submit to you and we resist the hand of the evil one and pray that your name will be exalted in Christ's name. Amen. Moses and Aaron had uh, come to Egypt with a measure of fear and a measure of doubt from their experiences in the desert. But as they were obedient in sharing with Israel what God had commanded them to share, they were encouraged because the Israelites took it up with, with a vengeance. They became excited with the possibility that God was going to deliver them. And this enabled them uh, to, with some enthusiasm, go before Pharaoh and declare God's message to him. But, as you know, Pharaoh uh, rather abruptly brushed, off, br brushed them off, and, and they were a little bit taken aback by that, but it was not a big discouragement. Then Pharaoh turned around and placed a heavier workload upon the Israelites as a result, and Moses and Aaron were dismayed about that. But the real blow came when, as we noticed last week, the foreman of the Israelite work crews, who had been beaten because the quotas of bricks were not made, went before Pharaoh to find out what was going on, and they were told by Pharaoh the reason for this. And when they left, they encountered Moses and Aaron, and they, they basically told off Moses and Aaron. Uh, you guys are responsible for the greater stress under which we are now laboring and for the difficulties that we are experiencing. And this, of course, brought great discouragement and great frustration to Moses and Aaron. When we deal face-to-face -face with the enemy, that's difficult. But when our co-workers, co-laborers, co-warriors then deal us a blow from the backside, that can be very, very discouraging and disabling. But Moses and Aaron provide us with a wonderful example. In spite of their discouragement, they knew where to go. They went to the Lord. And this is to their eternal credit. They didn't turn and run back into the desert and say, forget this whole thing, we washed our hands of this deal, we tried and it didn't work. Instead, they went to God and they kind of told God off a little bit, but God's big and God can take it. And God accepted their prayer. Beginning in chapter 6 of Exodus, I'd like to read the first nine verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, 
he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. And I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. God responds to the complaint, the complaining prayer that Moses and Aaron brought before God. I, I emphasized this last time, and, and I think it, it needs to be underscored that God is not teed off, to use a modern expression, if we go to him in complaining prayer. Because God knows our heart anyway. He knows what our thoughts are. And he knows that we don't know the future, as he does. Now, to us, the road looks like it just twists and turns and twists and turns and never straightens out and becomes level. But God sees the overall picture and he knows. And he knows that we are but dust. He wants us to come to him in prayer, even if it is a complaining prayer, rather than not. And you'll notice in his response here, and we're going to look at that response a little bit in some detail, but you notice how many times he keeps saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. <laughs> he identifies himself and puts the imprimatur of his deity on his response. God's initial reply to Moses' complaint was, first of all, to remind God, uh, Moses of God's unfailing promises. Now, this is something we sing about and we talk about maybe some, from time to time, but you know, one of the reasons for the scripture is that we can read about God's promises fulfilled, promises fulfilled all the way from Genesis through Revelation, God's promises fulfilled, so that we understand God has a viable track record and that we can trust him and, and that his promises are sure because we live in a world of promises, promises, <laughs> which are mostly broken. And God never breaks his promise. God had promised to deliver Israel, to set Israel free. And God will do that. He wanted Moses to know that I am already at work doing it. You may not see it, but I am at work bringing about my purpose. Secondly, God's reply was to explain to Moses a little bit more whom he was dealing with in God himself, to explain who is Yahweh a little more than he has already done before as he did at the burning bush. He said, I am Yahweh, who appeared to the patriarchs as El Shaddai. 
the Almighty God. Now in this third verse of the sixth chapter, when God said that he didn't make himself known to the patriarchs as Yahweh, it doesn't seem that he apparently means specifically the name in, in just the tetragram, the four letters that are uh, from the Hebrew. Let's uh, turn back again, if we will, to uh, Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, we have God dealing with Abraham, Abram again. And in verse 1, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And notice Abram's response. Abram said, O Lord God. And, and the Hebrew there is Adonai Yahweh. What wilt thou give me? And then he goes on. He uses the word Yahweh there. At least Moses does in, in writing what Abraham said. And since it's the word of the Lord, I think we can assume that Abraham said, Adonai Yahweh. So I think what we're seeing here when God makes this statement in Exodus concerning the name is not specifically the name in the sense of a spoken word, but the essence of the name, the real meaning of the name, Yahweh. The uh, patriarchs had not known God as Yahweh as Moses would come to know him as Yahweh. Uh, Abraham had known of, of El Shaddai as the God who, who could quicken a dead womb and bring forth a child. He knew uh, El Shaddai as the one who could help him defeat a, a much greater enemy as he did the uh, nations that came out of Mesopotamia at the time that Lot was carried into captivity. He, he, he knew El Shaddai as the one who could control nature. But to understand God, as Moses would understand Yahweh, he had not. And I think this is a little expression of what sometimes is called progressive revelation. God did not dump everything there is to know about him in the very first verses of the Bible. But the whole book of, we call the Bible, is a progressive revelation of who God is from the first chapter of Genesis to the final pages of the book of Revelation, we, we discover more and more of the nature and the character of God, who he really is. And so Moses will learn more about God than it would seem Abraham understood. And yet Abraham lived by faith. He knew enough about God to, to live by faith. And so Moses will be seeing even more of God's nature and of his attributes. He is a God who not only can but would deliver on his promises. He would deliver Israel. Even in the face of the stubborn resistance of the most powerful autocrat on the face of the earth at that time, as far as we know. I mean, God is not intimidated by Pharaoh. He's not intimidated by the president or king or monarch or emperor of any kingdom or empire or republic ever in history. I mean, even the Roman emperors, with all of their great might, they paled, of course, before the greatness of the God of Israel. God, Yahweh, is the redeemer of his people. And that's how he really begins to express himself. He is going to redeem Israel from 400 years of life in Egypt. He's going to redeem them. 
And again, as, as they talked about this earlier, it's hard, I think, for us to really get a handle on 400 years. Now, they weren't in captivity for the entire 400 years. The first years, as we know, they had lived in a kind of an honored position with, with Joseph as prime minister of the land. And, and, and that probably carried over a while until there arose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph and, and the bondage began. And how many years that was after they had initially moved into Egypt, we don't know. But, you know, even if it was only 300 years, that, that's a long time when you think about that. I mean, we are living in, in 1995. That would push us back to 1695. How many remember 1695? Well, <laughs> most of us probably don't even remember what happened in 1695, you know. <laughs> that was back in the, as far as the United States is concerned, we're back in the, in the colonial era still, you know. And, in fact, all of the colonies hadn't even been established yet. I mean, Georgia was still... A, 30 years away before it would even be founded as a colony at that time. And, and so a 300-year period, of, you know, it's just hard for us to get a handle on it. It's kind of like forever, you know, for, for people living at the tail end of that time. Oh, as far as we can remember, our people have always been in bondage here. And, and yet God would redeem his people. God is a, a rock of safety. Yahweh is the defender of Israel, both collectively and individually. Now, we have a tendency, as we study the Old Testament, to think of God dealing with Israel only as a group, as, as all these people in, 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 en masse, if you will. But, but God literally dealt with each one individually, even as he deals with us individually. We can be part of the church collective, but we individually stand before God. And so did the nation of Israel. Uh, you know, it says Israel did right in the sight of God and Israel did wrong in the sight of God. You can understand, of course, that when Israel was doing right in the sight of God, there were those who were doing wrong. <laughs> and when Israel was doing wrong, there were those who were doing right. You know, at one time, Elijah complained that he was the only one left that, uh, that really followed God. And God said, hey, <laughs> there are 7,000 who haven't yet bowed the knee to Baal. And so, as we tend to look at things in the big picture, we have to remember the individual relationship. And Yahweh is the God not only of the nation, but of the individual. Thirdly, God's reply to Moses, as we've read it here in the sixth chapter of Exodus, was to assure Moses that he knew of the groanings of the foreman. He knew of the, uh, the oppressive labor that had been placed over the nation of Israel. And he was reassuring him that he had not forgotten his covenant to Abraham. You are my people, and I will give to my people their own land. And then lastly, I think God's reply included a command to Moses. Go and inform Israel that what Yahweh was going to do. Yahweh was going to bring them out of Egypt deliver them and redeem them. Yahweh was going to be their God and carry them into the promised land. What more can you ask for? That's where it's all at for them and really ultimately for us. I think this response by God buoyed up Moses' spirit. I think he was lifted up by God's response. He, he of course, didn't understand all of God's response and, and he could have said, yeah, I know you say it, Lord, but I don't see it. But I think the overall picture was a lifting of Moses' spirit here. And as a result, he obeys. He says, okay, Lord, I'm going to go to Israel and deliver the message. 
that you have commanded me to deliver. But when he does so, the Israelites basically say, buzz off, buddy. <laughs> you told us this before, and look what's happened to us. We, we, don't, we don't want anything to do with what you have to say. The scripture says that they were despondent. They were oppressed by the fact that Pharaoh has brought this sudden and savage action, punishment, if you will, upon the people of Israel. They had to go out and make as many bricks as they had been ordered to make before, only now instead of being delivered the straw, which they mixed into the mud to make the bricks more, you know, hold together better, uh, they had to go out over the land and collect the straw so they can mix it with the mud and make the bricks and still produce as many bricks. And the foremen were being beaten because they were not meeting the quota. And that's what triggered this whole thing in the first place. Now, why were they so despondent and downcast? Well, it seems rather obvious that they expected a quick and easy victory. God said, I'm going to deliver you, and they just kind of like picked up, and it reminds me of, of the followers of William Miller back 150 years ago, who all decided, well, the Lord's coming. He said it was going to be in this day, so they sold everything, got rid of everything, got in their white robes, and went to the hilltops, waiting for the Lord to come. And, of course, when he didn't come, they were very, very despondent. Of course, Miller did what some of the more recent ones have done, and that is recalculated <laughs> and said, I just missed it a year, and they did it all over again, a few, few, uh, a few less the second time. Uh, but when that happened, the whole thing fell apart, at least for a while, <laughs> until Ellen G. White came along. But anyway, uh, th this whole thing, is, is replicated in history from time to time. And they were very despondent because God had not answered or, or followed through in his promise as they thought he should. They were ready for a quick and easy deliverance. They weren't prepared for a spiritual warfare. In fact, of course, most of them probably didn't even understand the concept of spiritual warfare. I mean, think of us today who have the entire counsel of God here before us, and how much do we really understand about spiritual warfare? Well, I'm sure throughout this room there's varying levels of understanding. Some understand it far more than others. Some of us have probably hardly even touched the surface of understanding of spiritual warfare. But uh, certainly within the church universal, there's very little understanding of spiritual warfare. And so they probably had no real concept of it, but that's what they were in. A mighty conflict of cosmic proportions. And they didn't understand that. Now, if, let's say they had been easily delivered, Pharaoh said, ah, sure, go. Just, just go. I mean, they would have given him the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, for, for being such a good guy. And, and they would have followed Moses and they would have exalted Moses to the heavens and God didn't want Moses exalted, he wanted himself exalted. And of course Moses would have some of the carryover glory, but Moses was not to be put on a pedestal. What God wanted Israel to know was that Pharaoh was virtually the incarnation of the evil one. When you read the accounts in both Isaiah and Ezekiel of descriptions which are generally interpreted to refer to an understanding of Lucifer, you'll notice in both cases they are 
presented within the framework of, of human kings. And, and so various rulers of history have, in effect, been sort of like incarnations of the evil one, kind of antichrists, if you will. And, uh, you know, some have written books about Mussolini being the Antichrist or Hitler being the Antichrist. Well, he wasn't maybe the Antichrist with a big A, but they certainly were Antichrist. I mean, both were viciously and vehemently anti the biblical understanding of God. And so was Pharaoh. And that's what God wanted them to understand. Pharaoh was an incarnation, in effect, of the evil one. And he wanted them to understand Egypt as representing the world, the system you don't want to be living in, the system you must flee from into the great theocracy that God would create. And also, he wanted them to understand that Moses was the instrument that God would use for deliverance, but he was not the deliverer with a capital D. No human is the deliverer with a capital D. It is God who delivers through his faithful servants. And to those faithful servants should go honor, but not deification, not exaltation. But that's a human tendency. All you have to do is look at the history of many churches and you discover that quite often some founder of the church is, is put up on a pedestal as if they could do no wrong. And when you suddenly read someday an honest biography of that person, you discover, oh, well, they had feet of clay after all. You know, they really blew it in many, pla in many places big time. And uh, they come down to human level, which is where they all belong. But those are not the only reasons that God didn't make the deliverance quick and easy. Uh, God knew that after Israel had lived in bondage for all these years, uh, if they were gloriously delivered and they had kind of a yellow brick road right on out into the Holy Land with divine miracles paving the way, that the Israelites would soon tire of the march because God had a particular plan for them. They weren't going to just march right out of Egypt across the top of the Sinai and, and right into Israel and take over the land, you know, turnkey. They were going to have to spend some time in the wilderness. They were going to have to go by way of, of Mount Sinai, which we've already noted is a long ways out of the direct route from Egypt to Israel. I mean, the Israeli army showed us how quick you could move from Israel to Egypt if you want to. <laughs> and they didn't go by way of Mount Sinai. But God had a roundabout plan for them. And he knew that they would tire quickly of the march through the desert. They would tire of the manna. They would long to return to the flesh pots of Egypt. And you and I all know that did happen. But it would have occurred much sooner and would have been much more uh, overwhelming had they not been pressed to their limits in the birth pangs of deliverance from Egypt. They had to undergo difficulty in getting out of Egypt in order to be at least semi-prepared for the difficulties that were ahead in the wilderness. Yeah, it, it reminds me, you've heard the illustration certainly many times, of the trees that grow quickly with shallow roots and uh, as long as no storm buffets them they're fine uh, and they grow quickly because there's adequate moisture, they don't need deep roots and so forth, but a big storm comes along and floop, they're over. 
But those trees which from the time their little seedlings were, are exposed to buffeting winds and are, are driven, their roots go deep so they can stand strong in the, in the face of the great winds and storms that come along. And that's what God wants. And that's why God allows the storms to come. And sometimes we may get tired of the storm. We'd like a little calm, you know. And often we say when the calm does come that it's just the what? Eye of the storm, right? And the other shoe will drop. Often it does. But I, I think this whole scenario here that we're looking at in Exodus is for our instruction that we remind ourselves that when things begin to turn difficult, that God is doing everything for our good. We kind of wear out that verse, don't we? Romans 8, 28, that God does everything you know, for our good. And, and we, it becomes so trite to us that we fail to realize that it is true. And that's what the Bible is talking about all the way through, that God is working for our ultimate good. But God is not in the process of, of just making life easy for us. His, his goal is not to, to just have us you know, live in a rose bed, unless you realize that rose beds have thorns. <laughs> and then we see what it really is like. So if things seem to get worse before they get better, God has an important purpose for us in that. And his goal is his glory and our good. And sometimes the process seems long. And you know, we, we don't know how many weeks were involved here altogether with Moses going before Pharaoh and, and you know, another plague comes in Egypt and that plague works its way through. Sometimes the plagues were a week long or more. And, and, then, uh, and, and Israel's going through all of this wondering, now when is God going to get through this and we're going to be delivered? It may seem like a long process, but in the big picture it's really momentary light affliction. Moses in, in, in this process is becoming a truly great man, a truly godly man, by trusting God in the midst of a hostile environment. Because now not only does he have to face a pharaoh who wants nothing to do with what he's talking about, but he's not supported by his own people that he's supposed to be delivering. Now they're, they're cutting him down behind his back while he faces the enemy on the other side. That's really discouraging. It's kind of Jeremiah-like approach to life and to ministry. And there are many times when pastors run into a situation like that, where the church doesn't seem to really be behind them in the ministry they feel God has called them to do. And uh, sometimes it, it causes a break. But God was at work here. Moses had to face what looked like to be a, a, a failure of his mission. He had come to deliver Israel. Pharaoh said no, oppressed the people even more, and the people basically told Moses to take a hike. You know, at that point you'd say, hey, well, I tried. It's all over, you know. Didn't work. But God is not finished. And, and Moses faced a dilemma. The dilemma of not understanding what God was doing while having to function as if he did. It reminds me of what uh, Jesus said to Peter. 
which we read in John 13, where he said, What I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. That's kind of a, a key to much of life. What I do now, you don't understand. What Jesus is doing in your life now, you may not really understand, but you will understand hereafter. And that's what God is saying to Moses and through Moses. You don't understand what I'm doing. You can't see the picture as I do. But when you look back on it, you will see it. And as you read through several passages of the Psalms, the whole thing is recounted again. And obviously with hindsight, Israel could look back and see what God did and what his plan was and what his ultimate purpose was. Peter couldn't understand how it could be that the Lord of creation would come and live on earth as a servant. Makes no sense to him. But he had to live obediently on the strength of God's promise that one day he would understand. And when it comes to the very bottom line, that is really what faith is all about. Faith is not based on understanding it all and saying, well, obviously this is what God is going to do, so I believe him. It's believing him on the, on the strength of his word, even when everything seems to be running in the opposite direction of what he has proclaimed. And so often that's what we see in life, isn't it? Sure was for Moses. I really think it's hard for us to put ourselves in his place and understand how deeply hurt he was to have his own people reject him and reject his word and, in effect, reject his God and, and not want him to do what he was commanded by God to do. So he was basically all alone. Oh, he had Aaron. That's good. So that two of them went alone before Pharaoh. That's at least what God told them to do. Well, let's look at verse 10 of Exodus 6. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Hmm. Where have we heard that before? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God said, go and do what I told you to do. Go back to Pharaoh and demand that the Israelites be freed. So now Moses is between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> and you can make either one you want to be the rock and the hard place. Israel behind him or Pharaoh in front of him. He was, he was between Charybdis and Scylla, the old nemesis of the, of the ancient uh, Greek and Roman world. How could he request a Pharaoh that he release the Israelites if the Israelites didn't support his request? We don't want to be freed under you, Moses. <laughs> Pharaoh could have said, okay, that's your request. Let me go ask the Israelites what they want. Moses would have been made to look the fool. And so what does he do? He falls back in his old burning bush excuse. I don't speak so well, Lord. I'm unskilled in speech. Literally, I'm of uncircumcised lips, which in effect means the same thing as it meant before, thick tongue. I don't speak so well, Lord. He was protesting, of course, that he was not quick enough of thought or eloquent enough of speech to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. He hadn't totally let go of the fact that he had to play a role in this, see. 
I've got to be eloquent enough to intellectually convince Pharaoh to let the people go. Moses is still working on the process of understanding himself that this is a spiritual warfare. And, and it, his intellectual capacity, no matter how great it was, or his speech, don't, I mean, he could have been a, 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 you know, a quintillion, for that matter, a great Cicero of fantastic order. And, and he would not have been able to convince Pharaoh of anything that Pharaoh didn't want to be convinced. And so it had to be of God, and Moses is still working on that. So if you and I have not come to that, that place of ultimate faith, don't be too hard on yourself. Because Moses hadn't yet either, in spite of the many exposures he had had directly to God. It's a lifelong process, this spiritual formation, if you will. Uh, and, and God is at work. And, and the main thing is to not be discouraged, but to continue to press on. And, and Moses does, and that's to his credit. Of course, God's in there pushing him along, too, part of the time. It's kind of interesting as you look at this passage, Moses, uh, that is the Lord, tends to ignore Moses' lapse back to the burning bush. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, God says uh, simply to Moses and Aaron, go about the task I've given you to do. You know, he, he just simply recommissions them to the task and he doesn't even seem to respond. He says, go to Israel, go to Pharaoh, and get the people out of the land. That's what I've called you to do, now go do it. It's kind of interesting that at this point in the narrative in Exodus, Moses launches into kind of a, what, what shall I say, a kind of a genealogy type, you know, kind of a early chronicles type list of, of names here. Uh, basically, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, we have Moses providing his credentials here. Now, why does he insert them here? God knows. But... He provides a genealogy of himself and of Aaron at, at this point. And certainly it's there to legitimize what he's doing, to, to show that he had authority, humanly at least, to, to be the spokesperson here and, and to be used by God in this particular instance. That they, had, that they were really legitimately of Israel. They weren't a bunch of wild-eyed egomaniacs coming in out of the desert proclaiming you know, things that were impossible. It's kind of interesting, I, we're not going to read through this passage, it just uh, takes time, but the way he presents it, he goes through sort of probably in honor to the older brothers, he, he makes a little bit of statement uh, in there about Reuben and Simeon before he launches into a much more detailed uh, genealogy of Levi, which of course leads then to himself and to Aaron. So if we turn to the seventh chapter of Exodus in verse 1. Then, Mo then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it as the Lord commanded them, thus they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
I, I think what this passage does is it reverts back to the 13th verse of the uh, previous chapter where God gives his charge to Moses and Aaron and just kind of gives greater detail of what that charge uh, involved. He's giving them a command to go about what he had already instructed them to do. To Moses' protest, which he seems to basically ignore, he, he kind of covers that in a way here because he's in effect saying, I've already taken care of your unskilled speech because as I told you at the burning bush, you could have Aaron to be your spokesman and Aaron is here to be your spokesman, so get with it. Well, he doesn't say it in so many words, but that's implied there in this uh, passage. So I don't want to hear anything more about unskilled speech, in effect, is what God's saying. He reminds them again, as he had reminded Moses before, that Pharaoh is going to resist. Pharaoh's not going to roll over and play dead. Satan virtually never rolls over and plays dead. He fights, usually, until he obviously can't win. And so they were not to be discouraged. This will happen. <laughs> so many passages in Scripture are there for us to know this will happen, so don't be discouraged. God is with us, even though these things will happen. It just keeps reminding me of, of the fact that there are groups who insist these things won't happen. There are evangelical groups who keep insisting that that God has made us kings and princes, which we are, but they want us to be kings and princes in a literal sense here. And, and you know, the royal road unrolls before us and we're going to have health and wealth and, and, and easy going all through life, which the Bible totally denies from one end to the other. It's just wishful thinking that's been made into theology. But the scripture makes it, you know, count it all joy when the various trials come upon us. God spelled out the reason for the difficulties. Why is it that Pharaoh's going to resist? Why is it it's going to be such a hard battle delivering Israel? And God spells it out there in the fifth verse of the seventh chapter. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's the reason. That's the reason it's going to be difficult, because it's going to take that for the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord. They have been indoctrinated for centuries in, in the pantheistic, polytheistic belief that evolved in this great theogony of gods. And how do you get free from that? Without a powerful power encounter, if you will. And that's exactly what's going to happen time and time again. And through it, the Lord is going to show the Egyptians that I am the Lord. That's what God's purpose is from the beginning of time to the end of time. That's what his whole program is about, demonstrating that he is the Lord so that all will know that he is the Lord. And, and that's where we come in. We're, we're to be instruments of the declaration of that knowledge by our lives, by our words, by supporting those who go to other lands to proclaim that truth. I am the Lord. <laughs> you know, you read the newspaper and all kinds of things are so terribly important. Who's going to win the pennant, you know? Who's going to win the Super Bowl this year? You know, who's going to be president next year? And all these things just, they just become so important. And if, if you really 
were to take to heart these, these <coughs> magazines that are by the checkout stand, the National Enquirer and everything, you discover how important some of these silly things are in the lives of various individuals. And it all is there to, to obliterate the truth that life is all about declaring who God is and knowing Him. Because it is He whom we must know in order to have life eternal. Without it, you know, it's, it's almost as if we know it, but don't really understand it. Because most of the people in the world are going to a very real hell. Because they don't know the Lord. And it should be our prayer that God will bring a massive, sweeping revival to His church and all around the world. That great numbers will be made aware of who God is and be changed. Well, these two obedient octogenarians go back to Pharaoh to deliver God's message. And what is important is their obedience is not based upon favorable circumstances, the obvious way to go, the way that everybody is pushing them, because all of that was negative, but upon the Word of God. And that's where our faith must be. This is the only foundation for our faith. If we don't have our faith on this, we don't really have faith. We have faith that's going to be up one day and down the next and, and shot to shreds the next day if it's based on circumstances and what seems to be the way things are going. How many times, how many times is it repeated in Scripture that what God commanded His people to do seemed to fly directly in the face of what common sense said to do? Was it common sense for a young man who had never held a sword in his life to go up against a military hero and giant and experienced veteran soldier and David with no armor, just a rock in a piece of cloth or leather or whatever against this armored knight, if you will? Makes no sense at all. <laughs> but he went in faith because God had said, Israel is my people. And this man is, is thumbing his nose at God's people, therefore at God himself, and therefore I defy him in the name of God. Flying in the face of all that seemed to be obvious, logical, reasonable. And many times, that's the way God wants us to believe. Verse 8 of uh, chapter 7. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then the Pharaoh called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, if that's kind of weird. Then yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. <laughs> God is never taken by surprise. It's really important for us to remember that, because sometimes we act as if he is. I mean, we know he can't be. But sometimes we actually 
we sometimes just have to listen to our own prayers. I'm sure we're all guilty of it. Instructing the Lord. Telling him about things that certainly he didn't know. But God, of course, was not and is not surprised. Here we begin the, 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 the power encounter. Uh, these will be the second and third confrontations. Pharaoh, of course, Moses had faced Pharaoh before, just basically said, let the people go. And Pharaoh told him to take a hike and began to oppress the Israelites more uh, harshly. Uh, but now we have an encounter with signs and wonders. And, and it's going to be followed by the first plague, of which we all know, of course, there were ten of these uh, demonstrations of God's power. And what we're looking at here as we begin this um, several chapter long uh, encounter between the God of heaven and the God of earth is a test, first of all, of Moses' faith and obedience. Moses at any time could have said, this is too much for me, God. You're going to have to call in the second string quarterback. I'm done. I can't handle this anymore. I mean, that could have happened. But what are we told in the New Testament? Faithful is he who calls us who will also do it. God will do it through Moses, and Moses will hang in there. It is also a demonstration of God's power, a very real, physical, as well as spiritual demonstration of God's power. But thirdly, it is also a demonstration of the reality of demonic forces in this world and of demonic presence in Egyptian religion. The demons are very real. Demonic power is very real. And these gods of this world are really gods with small g's in the sense that there are spiritual forces behind them. And the various tribal groups around the world who worship various deities don't do it just because they're ignorant and savage and primitive. They do it because there has been real power demonstrated. And, and so they believe. And that's what we'll see here. I mean, the Egyptians didn't believe in the god of the river and the god of the crocodile and the god of the ibis and the god of the sun and the god of the moon just because they didn't know what else to do and it was kind of a nice thing and, and you know, it was traditional. That, that played a role in it, but there was power there. They really saw things happen. As, as we see here, the secret arts of the magicians were real to the eyes of the blind. So at Moses' command, Aaron takes Moses' rod and throws it down before Pharaoh and his court there. It was obviously a plain wooden staff, just a hunk of wood, and the thing was instantly transformed into a menacing viper, probably a hooded cobra for reasons I will probably explain next week. <laughs> and we have to understand, Pharaoh now was seeing something that was beyond words. Let the people go, what for? Now there's a demonstration that there is some power here. And Pharaoh feels a challenge. There is a challenge here, much more than words. This is obviously supernatural power, or else Moses and Aaron are Pretty good magicians. But I think we have to understand that Pharaoh, with a measure of confidence, summoned his sorcerers. I don't think he said, no, 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 this is really a problem. I wonder what my guys can do. I think he sat there and says, piece of cake. Sorcerers come. You know, and they came to face this. Who are these sorcerers? They're probably the priests of Amun-Re, or various of the gods of Egypt. They were steeped in spiritism. 
I mean, they, none of the New Age people would hold anything on these guys. They knew all this stuff, you know. Ascended masters and astral travel. Uh, they, they understood all of this, certainly. They had been instructed. And they threw their staffs on the floor, and their staffs also turned into serpents. Let me read that verse you have read probably in times past from 2 Timothy. Gives us just a little bit of insight here. 2 Timothy 3.8. Paul is in the process here of instructing Timothy about difficult times in the last days. And in the process, he refers to a historical event. In verse 8, he says, uh, well, first in verse 7, talking about always learning and never able coming to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then he says in verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards the faith. Now we look at this and we say, Janus and Jambres, never heard of those guys before. Well, the, 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 the sorcerers are not mentioned in Scripture in terms of names. But the Jewish Targums, which are Aramaic uh, paraphrases of the Hebrew Scripture, make reference to these two individuals. And that's where Paul's picking it up. And I think that if it is in Holy Writ, this is my opinion of the authority of Scripture, I think that if it's in Holy Writ, the Targums were correct at this point. That word of mouth, although not in Scripture, in, in Moses' writing of the Genesis, that, that the tradition had carried down, carried down truth. And, and Moses, therefore, uh, Paul injects it here. That probably these were the two chief magicians, the head dudes here, and who came out to, in response to this challenge and tossed their staves down on the floor, and they too became serpents. I think it's a good place to stop. And uh, next week, we'll, we'll, what is the significance of it? I mean, after all, that's what we're really after here is the significance of this.